Hello, everybody. This is the eighth official AVP Galaxy podcast. Uh, this is Mikey speaking, and with me I have Corporal Hicks. Hi there, everybody. Today we have a special guest with us. He's the man behind the Alien Quadrilogy set, the DVD set that actually spoiled pretty much all DVD sets for me, the recent Alien Anthology Blu-ray set, and the Prometheus set. And so we'd like to welcome uh, Charles de Rica. First of all, thank you very much for joining us, Charles. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's all right. And, well, I'm going to let Mikey start this one off. All right, so... I, I personally don't know a lot about you, and I'm sure a lot of the other members on the website don't either. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you do and where you are? And if I remember this correctly from a little bit of the research I've done, did you help Ridley Scott start in the direction of using DVDs for his movies? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I got started in DVDs was through Ridley. I had been working at his uh, company. I started as an intern when I was in film school, but then I went on to become a script reader, and then I just was assigned a variety of little special projects and things. And during that time uh dvd was just starting up this was so so this was around 97 98 and um i had heard through the grapevine that fox was working on the first alien set which turned out to be the alien legacy set and i just happened to mention to ridley that this dvd is going to be a really great format maybe you should take advantage of it look into it and on top of that you know please make this first alien set as great as it can be i gave him a full brief on dvd and its potential and before he went to meet with fox he just basically turned to me and he asked you know is this something you can be in charge of for me and uh, I just you know pretty matter-of-factly said yes and jumped in and it was a trial by fire and I learned very quickly but I don't know I just kind of enjoyed it and uh, it was a nice little side job that's turned out to be a 14 year side job you've done quite a lot of Ridley's sets haven't you done a lot of work on Blade Runner and went about two three versions of Alien yeah I, I, I supervised the Alien Legacy set I didn't do the extras on that one and then Quadrilogy was the first time I actually produced the extras and I did them for all four of the films and then Anthology so yeah three on to Prometheus which is the last Yes. The, well, the latest one you've done with Ridley in terms of the Alien series. Now, throughout the promotion for the film, Fox was really trying to sort of downplay its its Alien connection. But when but when it comes to the Blu-ray, straight from the go, the menus are very similar to how you made Anthology, the Anthology mm-hmm. look. Given that the movie was out and that we, you know we did know about the connections, did you make a conscious decision to play into the other set more? Was was that one of the decisions? Well, I mean, the way I always looked at it, I, I called I called Prometheus a cousin to the Alien films, not a direct sibling, but but a cousin, and and that's kind of how I treated every aspect of the disc. I mean, structurally, it's very similar to the anthology, but in terms of design and just the overall aesthetic, it's you know it's it's a little more cleaner, higher tech, a little more elegant and glossy, much like kind of Prometheus is in in, in so far as it's got a very heavy Wayland Corp presence. Um, whereas the anthology is cyberpunk, grungy future, and um, Prometheus is a little more elegant and refined, and you know it's kind of the, it's kind of like going from with, with Prometheus going like being an upper class on Virgin Atlantic, uh, and then traveling over to the Millennium Falcon, or, or, or better said, the Nostromo, frankly, uh, you know, more of a grungy used future. Uh, vessel. I kind of I treated the discs that way too. I can't speak for Mikey here. I don't know much about the sort of production process for Blu-rays or DVDs, 
when it comes to approaching a new set, how do you do it? How do you decide what to do? Can you walk us through that process? No process process has been identical, but it really depends. Is it an older film? Like when I when I worked on Blade Runner, it was sort of a different process because that was all archival and it was almost like movie archaeology. It was going through boxes and digging things up and then going back and conducting interviews with uh, cast and crew, you know, 25 years later. So, you know, that's that's one way to go. But then with Prometheus, that's a new film that's being created, you know, contemporaneously. So it's like I'm I get to actually document it myself and I get to go on set and I shoot the behind the scenes footage or I have a crew that I work with and uh, I'll conduct the interviews and then we edited everything together. But um, usually what I do is I just look for the overall story that I want to tell or that I think should be told based on what are the more interesting aspects of the making of the film. And I just take a look at what exists or what doesn't exist in the case of an older film. It's a new film. Then we have to kind of documented as we go and and you know hope we cover everything but the great thing about prometheus is that I, w- I started very early on it i started i believe over a year before shooting began documenting it so i have a, a huge wealth of footage to draw upon because i actually got to watch the film unfold in terms of the making of it it was uh, it was easier for me to you know target certain subject matter and and ask questions that were very specific with an eye towards what the the blu-ray experience would be like because that's a far more nitty-gritty detailed narrative than what you would get in a promotional featurette or an HBO special. But basically it boils down to me or my crew shooting footage on set or conducting interviews. And that sort of informs the process, the, the, or the direction you take with like the the story you're telling with the documentary and stuff like that. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's basically like journalism. I mean, you're basically just following the story and trying to cover it as best you can. And this, this is actually the first sort of Aliens-related thing you've been able to cover yourself from pre- production all the way to home release did you work on the anthology set and the previous set sort of inform what you wanted to do with it with Prometheus yeah absolutely I mean um, you know with Alien for instance there's precious few minutes of behind the scenes footage from Alien that was shot back in 78 and um, you know every time Fox comes to me and they ask can we do something new you know when it was on the quadrilogy and then later on the anthology can we do something new I always think wow it's Shame I don't have a time machine that I can't go back in time to 1978 and document the hell out of Alien because, you know, we've pretty much used all the um, available footage. I know there's more footage out there that we don't have access to, but we've used pretty much everything we, we could. Um, we can always conduct new interviews and we can always rely on still photography and conceptual art and outtakes from the film. But, um, you know, the documentation of Alien is long since passed. So with Prometheus, I approached it as with that in mind, so some future documentarian doesn't look back at the making of Prometheus 25 years from now and, and, you know, scratch their head, like, why didn't we cover it? You know, why didn't we cover this day or why didn't we cover that scene? And so we try to shoot everything we possibly could on Prometheus. So is that not something you typically do for, like, another project? It depends on the film, to be honest, because, you know, every film has a different budget. And that's the reality of the situation. You know, some days, some projects we can afford to have a, a camera person on set every day. Others we can't. And we have to pick and choose. And we have to look at the script and we have to talk to the crew and say, or ask them what are the more interesting aspects of the film. And those can often be tough decisions. And sometimes I just dip into my own pocket and cover a day that we're not covered for with the budget because I feel like once it's gone, it's gone forever and we need to preserve it, which I did a bit on Prometheus as well, but it wasn't as bad because I think Fox also understood the importance of documenting as much of the film as we possibly could so um you know it really depends on the film it depends on the demands of the filmmaker and the studio you know some films 
it may not need the elaborate coverage that we did on Prometheus. You know, um, that's not for me to say. I, I always try to get as much as I possibly can. But every, like I said earlier, every project is very different from another. Uh, Mikey? Yeah, so the Furious Gods documentary, that thing was a beast. I had to watch it over like three or four days because I didn't realize it was three hours almost. How long did it actually take you to make the documentary? Well, I, I left the year before shooting began, and we were shooting probably, I think, even past the release of the film a bit. So that's, you know, it's about two years or so, over two years of of shooting we didn't shoot every single day of those two years like when you're in pre-production you kind of just go down and cover what's interesting or you, you try to be there for certain meetings regarding certain subject matter um and post kind of the same thing you don't need to be there every single minute the film's being edited or scored but you you try to go down for the big moments or you try to get a flavor of the process um it's really during production where you try to cover as much as you can because that's where you know the movie is being captured so there was that. And then once we get all that material, which I believe I've got about seven terabytes worth of footage, behind the scenes footage of Prometheus, you know, that, that then makes sense of it all. And you have to you have to ask yourself, well, what's the story? What were the interesting challenges the crew faced? How do they overcome them? So then you try to sculpt that into something, you know, interesting. And when you cover a film as elaborately and as detailed as, as we did with Prometheus, you tend to end up with a pretty long documentary, at least I do, because I find it fascinating. And I always try to be as thorough as I can, because I feel like if, you, if it's a topic you're not interested in, you can just skip to the next topic. You don't have to watch every single minute of it. But I know a, a lot of fans, particularly of the Alien films, love this stuff. Uh, whether they like the film or not, they still want to know about the process. So I figure, you know, let's put as much in there as we can. So with the documentary, it's three hours and 41 minutes long. But then we have like, I believe, like an hour and 15 of enhancement pods. So you almost have five hours of documentary to go through. But again, it's, you can go as deep, deep or shallow as you want. You can tailor the experience to your liking. Um, I, I don't make you sit there and, you know, you don't have to watch every single second of it in order. You can skip around. You can check things out topically. But you know, again, it's like going to a library. It's like you can never have too many books. You know, and I feel like if there's something you really want to know about, put it on the disc. And if there's things you don't want to know about today, you might want to know about it a month later. I mean, who knows? So I always try to load them up as best I can. Right. Given the sort of fly on the wall approach, I imagine you must take when you're doing your filming, trying to keep out of the way the cast and everything, the crew. Does it make it harder <clears throat> for you to associate with them? Yeah, it's very interesting. I've seen. Um, other documentarians, you know, how they behave and on set and they, a lot of them really befriend the cast and crew. Um, and they, they're very social and they're very, um, you know, they, they, they like to joke around and, and be very personal with them because they feel like that opens them up. And it probably does to some degree. I take a different approach, which is I try to disappear and become invisible and, and not in the way. And I feel like that tends to get me more honest moments because otherwise, if they know you're there, and even though you might be a friendly face, then they then they tend to, to ham it up for the camera, or it's not as truthful of an experience. You know, they know they're they're aware of the cameras there, and they tend to show off or censor themselves for the camera. I tend to be almost like a walking surveillance camera, where I just you know I just try to blend in as best I can. I mean, it doesn't mean I'm not social with the crew or the cast. I mean, I talk to them, and I inter obviously I interview them at some point, so I know I'm there. But I basically just try to get them to forget about me. And I just try to, you know, be very respectful of their space. I don't get too close unless I'm welcomed in, you know, and you just have to read that moment to moment. You know, sometimes you can tell 
they're they're into it you know they're they're happy to have you there other times they just kind of want to be alone to focus on their work and you just have to be aware of when to go in and when to when to hang back did the relationship with uh, ridley make your work on prometheus a little easier to work on the sets that you're on oh absolutely yeah i mean um i mean i think on all these uh, documentaries that i've done i've gotten access that probably someone else wouldn't have gotten um just because you know there's a trust level by now i feel and that i'm not going to immediately upload it to YouTube and, you know, give it to Anna Cool News or whatever. It's like, it's, it's going to, it's going to stay with me and it's going to stay vaulted and it's going to stay protected um, until we actually release the material. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a, there's a trust level where I, you know, I, I will never abuse that and I will never, um, you know, take advantage of it. I just, I just try to do my best to be as truthful and, and honest from like a journalistic standpoint in terms of making the film. But I'm also, you know, I'm also looking out for everyone's best interests. I'm not trying to make anyone look bad. So, you know, you're always kind of walking a bit of a fine line there. But to me, ultimately, it's about paying tribute to the filmmakers and making sure that their work is immortalized. doesn't mean everything always goes smoothly or everything's a, you know, a picnic. I mean, sometimes you have very difficult moments on set. There's a lot of tension. There's some arguments. And, you know, you kind of have to play those case by case and see how they connected to the overall making of story. You know, if it was an actual moment of tension that resulted in something great or resulted in um, some sort of innovation or, you know, caused a uh, some sort of historic moment to happen in the film, that is something I would run by the people involved and ask, is it okay to include this? If it's just, you know, tempers flaring up, which happens, everyone's human, especially when you're a passionate, creative person, you, uh, you sometimes you know, have to vent. And uh, in those moments, I tend to shy away from or I back off, I give them their space. So, you know, you just have to again, play it by ear. Ridley's been very sort of accommodating and letting me sort of play in his sandbox and just sort of be a respectful geek on set that, <laughs> that you know, documents and, and, and keeps everything sort of stored away for fans and just, you know, knows what to, to look for in terms of the, the making of story, but also doesn't abuse it. I mean, I've, I've tried you know, try to be very respectful of, of him and his process and everyone on the crew and the cast. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I can't speak for everybody, but for me, that's like heaven. You've got Pandora's box right there. <laughs> um, I like that stuff. I don't know about anybody else, but I would love to have opportunity to keep stuff like that. That's you just, you have everything right there. That's awesome. Now, one thing I'm curious about is how much sort of input does really have with your sets and uh, with, with the, the Blu-ray sets. I mean, is there any sort of stuff you'll look at and, not like or does it just sort well, of leave you all up to it i um usually he just lets me do my thing i give him rough cuts of everything and um you know if, if he can he'll look at it occasionally if it's something sort of hot i will i will make a separate disc for for him to look at and say look you might want to take a look at this specifically everything else is pretty straightforward and safe but this one you might want to look at but, you know, on the whole, he kind of lets me just get on with it. And the, the cast and, and certain members of the crew might watch some of it and, and weigh in. But, you know, usually Ridley's involvement is, is really with the film itself and, and how it, like, the, the picture and sound quality, you know, need like the level of quality they need to be for the disc. And also uh, deleted scenes he's very um, involved in, especially on the new films. On the older films, he's not as directly involved. Like on Blade Runner, for instance, we only had a few deleted scenes that were actually edited together. Um, the rest, I actually had to go through the dailies and cut it together myself with, with my editors 
because there was no guide to follow. You know, it was just raw dailies. But as a fan, I knew it was very important to show this footage to fans, but it had to be edited together. So basically all the deleted scenes on Blade Runner was just me having fun with Ridley's dailies and cutting it together, which was very intoxicating, frankly, to to have his these beautiful dailies of like just raw. It was almost like, you know, a glorified fan edit, basically, of, of his of his footage. But on Prometheus, or on the newer films, he will work with uh, his editor, uh, Pietro Scalia, and um, the, the, between the two of them, they will sort of come up with a uh, package of, of deleted scenes for me to then go through and, and try to organize and title and put those on the disc. But um, that's usually how it works with Ridley. You're also a filmmaker yourself, uh, and you've uh, been doing convention rounds for your movie uh, Crave. Uh, yep. You've also edited the Alien 3 assembly cut. Would you have liked to done a cut for Prometheus itself? Would I would I like to have done like an extended cut of Prometheus? Um, yeah, or your own cut of the of the film. Uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, <laughs> it's tough because on the one hand, it's it's not my film. It's not for me to say. You know, I do find it's an interesting exercise. I think when I see all of these fan edits for other films, and I'm, and, and I'm sure there's going to be more and more for Prometheus. I already know there's a few, and I'm sure there'll be more. And I always think it's interesting to see what people come up with in terms of what they think is, is the best cut of the film. But I don't I don't really put myself in that headspace when it comes to um, uh, these films. I do the, the 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 extras for just because it's it's not my role, frankly. And um, even though I could be like a, a Monday morning quarterback and just sit back and and say, well, it should have been this, it should have been that. You should have taken this out and put this in. It's, it's, I don't know. That's to me, that's a fool's errand. I don't I don't really think it's worth exploring um, me, me personally I know other people love to obsess over that and I enjoy those conversations but I don't know I, I, I basically in the terms of like the Alien 3 assembly cut slash special edition cut I mean that was basically just because Fincher didn't want to be involved you know yeah. and we just, we had to do something and Fincher gave us his blessing to, to go ahead and do whatever we wanted but even though I had basically total control to cut the movie together anyway I wanted to cut it together I didn't think that was historically sound. I thought people would want to see what, what Fincher and Terry Rawlings came up with in the, in the earliest sort of iteration of the film uh, or in terms of the, the edit. Uh, Cause who cares what, what my, you know, uh, vision of what the cut should be. It's like, I'm, I'm just here to help out, you know, I'm here to, to guide people through the process. I'm not, it's not for me to re-edit the film and, and, and revise what actually happened. So I feel the same would be the case with um, including Prometheus. It's like the filmmaker, if the filmmaker wants to be involved, great. He should put together whatever cut he wants. Um, if he wants multiple cuts on, on the disc, great. We should do that too. If he doesn't want any cuts except for the theatrical, yes, that's exactly what we should do. So I, you know, I just, def- I usually defer to, I mean, I don't usually, I always defer to the, uh, the filmmaker's wishes. Um, and then you have to kind of negotiate a bit with the studio in terms of what they would like, and if the studio really feels passionately about something, they will they will speak to the filmmaker directly, and they will kind of come to some sort of agreement. Um, but as far as I can tell, you know, 99 times out of 100, the director ultimately gets what he wants, especially when you're dealing with filmmakers of, of the caliber of, of, say, Ridley. That was a very tap dancey answer to your question. Uh, <laughs> it's just, you know, it's a complicated subject, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I don't clean answer that covers it all it's like it really is case by case believe me there are times i see films that i, I wish god if they just put that one scene back in it would be perfect but you know if, if you really feel that way just go do it you know now everyone has the technology to cut it together on their laptops if they like and um and, it, and i think it's interesting to see that evolution i mean it, it all really as far as i can tell i might be wrong about this but it all really began with star wars and just people you know trying to you know kind of salvage their own 
memories of what the films were when they when they grew up and then how to reconcile all the new changes that have been made over the years and and ultimately boiling down to well <clears throat> there are so many versions of star wars out there there's so many versions of of uh scenes from star wars everyone kind of has what they love or, or or what they view to be the the pure version of the film so it's great that now that we have technology for people to just go do that on their own so they can enjoy it and now that applies to every film that has deleted scenes available and in fact I mean, I don't do it intentionally with this in mind, but I always know that, like, for instance, on Blade Runner, say, or even the the past Alien sets, you know, in the documentaries, I always include outtakes and alternate angles and <clears throat> other little bits that I know will end up in a, fan, in a fan edit, you know. And, in fact, when we put these things together, we know, okay, so even though we have whatever 40 minutes of deleted scenes, we also have, if you really go through the documentary, there's tons more in there in terms of other angles, alternate takes, different bits that if someone really, really wanted to, they could construct uh, their, their super mega cut and have everything they, they possibly want, you know, but I, that's, that's not for me to do. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm frankly, I have other things I'm interested in. That's fair enough. Um, my, one of my favorite things about these sets, DVDs, Blu-ray releases in general are commentaries. Your anthology set and Prometheus sets tend to have pretty interesting, very sort of in-depth commentaries but as i understand it a lot of are recorded separately rather than having everybody in the room at the same time does that make it difficult to cut them all together to edit them together i mean you know it really depends um <clears throat> on some of them in the in case in point um alien on the uh quadrilogy slash anthology commentary with uh you know the, the cast and crew so that one was really difficult to get to cut together and kind of have it seem smooth and have a nice flow to it just because each the, the energy in each recording session was, was so radically different but then on aliens it flowed incredibly smoothly and i'm not exactly sure why because they were all also multiple sessions cut together but just for some reason i think i think a lot of it had to do with the fact that we had people doing commentary on aliens that they had never done commentary before for that film whereas on alien I think that was like Ridley's third time doing it. Um, and, you know, once you're asked to do something, a commentary like that for the third time, you, you tend to not want to repeat yourself. So you tend to start digging into kind of like the B and C and D stories versus the A stories, you know, which is what you got the first time. So it, it could have been some of that. But, it, it, yeah, it is very difficult. And I, and I personally, from a recording standpoint, it's always easier when you get everyone in the room together and and just you know record as record as a straight shot and then polish it up later you you remix a little and then you just deliver it but the problem with having too many people in the room is that suddenly it it becomes a bit of a party atmosphere or people start to talk over each other and then it, then you kind of like lose the uh, kind of academic side of it you know or the side of it where you're actually learning things and it just becomes more of people hanging out on a couch and just having fun drinking beer and talking about the film and I, and I know that sounds a lot of like it's a lot of fun but <clears throat> rare when those come together as beautifully as, as say something like the john carpenter kurt, kurt russell tracks you know we've heard or um uh, one of my favorite tracks is is one of the ones that i i recorded which was for speed actually with graham yost and, and mark gordon you know, I, I kind of went into that session thinking it was going to be a, a boring commentary track, and it turned out to be so much fun because those guys just clicked, and they were just telling these really great, funny stories, and they had a really great repartee between them. Um, so when it comes to a commentary session, you just never know until you're maybe about five minutes in what kind of track it's going to be. And it's really hard to change the energy in the room. I mean, you can try, but it's uh, it's it's kind of just best to, to – what I do is I just try to get I, – I do a pass with, with the – Spent. Basically, I just say, you know, we'll watch this in real time. 
you know, don't worry about gaps, just we'll talk through it. And I will, you know, basically prompt them with questions if they dry up for more than, say, 20, 30 seconds. And then after we're done, then I go in and I ask, like, in more of an interview style uh, questions that I know that I can then plug into the holes that came about during that first pass. Um, that's what I usually do. And, you know, sometimes we don't have the opportunity to come back and ask those additional questions because we run out of time. Because that's the other thing is nowadays people have very tight schedules. You know, I think there was a lot more um, in the early days of DVD. There's a lot more interest in blocking out half the day to do interviews or commentary. Now, because it's part of the process, and I think people, maybe some of the, the, the bloom is off the road, that they don't really have that kind of time for you anymore. Not everybody. Some people still give you the time. But, but with like particular actors, I mean, they really kind of come in and then they're out of there super fast and you have to do the best you can. Uh, case in point, like with uh, Sigourney, um, when, I, when I did the, the quadrilogy interviews with her, if you notice, you know, we only have new interviews with her for one through three. She didn't do Resurrection. That's because we ran out of time. Do all the on-camera interviews with Sigourney and do the commentary with her and Ridley for Alien. And she did that in a gap in her schedule when she was promoting uh, that film she did called Holes. And it was like at the press junket, basically. So we got her for, I think, two or three hours. But in that time, we had so much to do. And, um, you know, it's uh, it, like I say, every situation is different. You just try to do the best you can with what you're given. It doesn't always work. But fortunately, most of the time, at least you have something to share with people. And they get, they get, a, they get, they get a flavor of it, even if, you know, even if they don't get the nitty gritty that you hope for every time. It was a very long, elaborate... <laughs> oh, it's got a lot of like stuff like this. You looking at doing more sets for it? For Prometheus? Yeah. Well, no. That's, I, mean, I mean, look, we have tons of material archived. If, if there was ever a need to come back to it, we could do new, meaningful stuff, but there's no plan. I mean, you know, one thing I, I have to say, people think that the studios or the producers involved are intentionally have to screw fans over with double and triple and quadruple dips, and that's really not the case. I mean, obviously there will always be a need to refresh the, the title and come out with something new down the road if there's a, if there's a reason to do it. Um, and whenever those reasons or opportunities come up, and if I'm on the project, I always try to do the best job I can to, to bring something new to the table um, rather than just kind of rehash the, the, the same old stuff. But, um, you know, I, I really think if, if you look at the Prometheus set that came out, uh, I think it's fair to say we really loaded it up and, and, and tried to make it a definitive set. And I consider it a definitive set. I, there was nothing intentionally left off the table. But if there is ever a need to come back to Prometheus, there's more we could do. And, and it, it could be interesting. I just would need to go through everything all over again and, and, and see what we didn't cover this first time. Because I wouldn't want it to be just fluff, just to pad it out. But I, I do believe there's there's plenty more that we can cover just because we covered so much of it. I mean, just think about it. If we have if we you know been shooting for two years off and on, and the, and the and Prometheus itself, the production I believe was about I feel like it was I want to say between like 70 75 days or something like that. I don't remember. But you know, we have that much footage for every single day, you know. And there's what there's seven hours of video content on the disc. I mean, that should tell you right there, we have tons of material, but some of it is like watching paint dry. You know, some of it's super boring because you have to roll and you hope something happens, you know, and I'll be on set and I'll just be standing there with the camera rolling, even though I know nothing's happening, but I do that because in the event something happens in front of me, I will have caught it. So it's really like, it is kind of going back through like surveillance tapes and trying to find like the, the golden moments. Now that sort of brings us on to something else. Giga. He's a pretty elusive guy, and he's never really sort of 
like to talk about his his work on the on the films. Um, and as I understand it, he nearly didn't appear in the Prometheus set at all. Was there much sort of footage of him that you didn't you couldn't include in in the set this time? Um, no, I mean, there's there's more footage of him in that meeting that he had with Ridley, which might be interesting to see someday. But for this time, just in terms of the the narrative point that we're trying to make in the documentary, what you see is is pretty much what was all, all that was needed this time. Um, but there was a lot of last-minute scramble with Giger just in terms of getting his approval um, to include that footage. So just because it was so last-minute, that didn't give us a lot of wiggle room to, to to talk about adding more or to including more, like, you know, raw, uncut moments of him and Ridley collaborating. It was just – it was basically we, we had to – we had a date, obviously, because we can't miss the date. And Giger, uh, they were still working out his deal – and, um, you know, we had to get his approval and um, and all that, which is fine. That's the normal thing anyway. You, you know, you have to get everyone's people approval. You have to get them to sign a release. But just in this case, it was so down to the wire and we were just so out of time in the end that, uh, you know, it was it was frankly great that we, we you know, and that we that we got to show his art um, because there was a moment there where I thought we weren't going to be able to. Um, and it wasn't again, it wasn't anything contentious. It was just it was just really just getting it through the pipeline. Um, and in his case, it was, you know, it was just very late in the game. So I'm, you know, I'm really glad we got him in there um, because it was a really wonderful visit when he came out. And he was very nice with me. He's a, he's a very sweet man and, and very uh, soft-spoken. And he, uh, you know, he asked me about some of the other alien documentary stuff that I'd done. And, and he reached into his, into his bag and he said, I have a gift for you. And he pulled out a... Um, a really beautiful DVD set he made of some of his short films and um, he signed it to me and uh, it was, it was, you know, it was a really wonderful visit when he came out. So I have very fond memories of Giger. I, I always wish I could interview him, but that just, that opportunity didn't come up this time, but maybe next time. Now that you're starting to make feature films, would you ever want to work on a alien or Prometheus film in a production capacity instead of ju- just the filming behind the scenes? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I would love that. I, you know, I've always had in my my head my own sort of uh, version of what an alien slash Prometheus film um, could be. I've I've had epic discussions about it with you know people who worked on the film and um, and even people at Fox about it, and uh, it's all good fun. But sure, if if my career, uh, my directing career pans out and I get that opportunity, I would love to do it. Um, it's a world I, I'm completely obsessed by um, ever since I was. You know, my, my mom took me to see Alien opening day at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood in 1979, and that pretty much <laughs> rocked my world. And I, I um, there, there are certain very specific moments of that opening night I'll never forget. And I just, I, I have always felt like oh, that'd be that would be a world I would love to explore. But you know, that's that's down the road. And uh, you know, if I get that opportunity, yes, I would jump at it. And um, I think I think the Alien franchise has actually a lot of life left in it because the one great thing about the Alien films is, is that you know for the most part, um, with, with Prometheus being the exception, you know they've all been very different directors with very unique visions of their own. I think that has been fascinating because it's it's almost like you're you know you're watching a, a film festival of, of Alien films because everyone is just so radically different. You know they all take place in the same universe, and um, it was kind of interesting to see Ridley come back to it, and, and even he had changed. His vision, you know, uh, now is not the same vision that we saw back in, in 79. So it's a, it's a very, to me, 
it's very fascinating how it's evolved over time and how it should continue to evolve. Is it something you've ever talked to Ridley about taking on a production capacity with uh, if he came back? Yeah, not um, not lately. I mean, I've I've broached it very softly, you know, kind of conversationally, and you know, I think it's really it'd really be a matter of me kind of going up to him and demanding it in a way. And, and just in, in such a way that, that he understood that I was passionate about it and I really meant it. Because, you know, I've been working really in various capacities for, I think it's been like 18 years now. And, I, you know, it's, it, I, I've, I've found my, my nice little groove in his, in his universe, which is, you know, doing the, the DVD Blu-ray stuff. And he knows that I love this material and he knows that... I, uh, you know, especially when it comes to science fiction, I, uh, I have a great affinity for what he's done. But I, I think he responds passionately. I think he responds to people who are driven and, and people who, um, you know, ha- have a, a goal in mind. And I just need to basically, if I if I can find a way to make a meaningful contribution and I can find a way to fit, then yeah, I would love to do it. Right now, you know, I'm happy doing the the, the DVD Blu-ray work uh, to pay the bills, and then. And, I'm also happy to see what's happening with Crave, which has been very well received so far, and we're really close on distribution. You know, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how the directing thing will uh, will grow and, and hopefully, you know, become something that is more of my passion in life because that's what I've always wanted to do. Um, it is it's certainly my passion. It's just can I make it uh, a realistic job that I that'll pay the bills? Because I mean, ultimately, that's what it boils down to is uh, being able to live. And the DVD thing um, has been wonderful for that for me, but I do need to find some kind of transition, either doing the original film or getting out of DVD and just doing films. You've got, you've got any sort of future plans after, after Crave in terms yeah. of films? Yeah, I mean, the reaction to Crave um, has been such that I'm now, you know, being approached next film, whatever it's going to be, and. Um, you know, I have a few options, but the big one is is actually it's a science fiction project, and it's the whole reason I made Crave was because I had been developing um, with Issa Dick Hackett, who's Philip K. Dick's daughter, uh, an adaptation of one of his short stories. Uh, we've been working on it for a while, and it's a it's a futuristic science fiction film. And she felt, wouldn't it be great if I directed something smaller and leaner and meaner basically to show that I can direct uh, before we try to go and raise money for this, you know, more expensive science fiction film. And that's what Crave came out of. I mean, that was basically just me trying to like find a, almost like a test film that, that could prove that I could make a film. And uh, that was, you know, that was like three years ago when we had the first had a conversation, I believe. So now here we are, here we are three years later and Crave is done and it's, it's doing pretty well. So now going back to that Philip K. Dick short story, which is um, I Hope I Shall Arrive Soon is the title. And, um, you know, uh, we're, we've, we have a really, really rough draft of it. We're trying to get it polished up and presentable by the end of the year. And we'll see what next year holds. I mean, it'll either be that, hopefully, or if not, maybe something else. But that's kind of the, the trick right now is to find what's the right next project that makes sense to me creatively that I feel like I can make a, a you know, a, a contribution to that results in, a, in another really good film. And it isn't just, you know, shooting just for shooting's sake. You know, I mean, I, I want to make something that means something to me. And this, this particular something to me, it's really a very uh, human story that I, I relate to. So I hopefully, hopefully that'll be it. But 
you know, it's, it's a very interesting time right now because I've, I've not been in the situation before. I, I, I thought I would make a film and then maybe make another little film and make another little film after that. But um, just given the reaction of Creative and, and, and how well it's done in the festivals and, and the reviews we've gotten, it's, it's kind of like an opportunity now. I want to, you know, I want to be careful to take full advantage of. I don't want to wait too long before the heat goes away, but I also want to be very smart about what my next move is. So that's kind of where I'm at. Before we sign off, I mean, is there anything that you'd like to say to our listeners? Anything I haven't given you the opportunity to get out there? Um, well, you know, I, I read AVP Galaxy, you know, um, occasionally. Um, I still, you know, obviously during like during the making of Prometheus, I read it all the time. I mean, I was at Pinewood. We had our, our office where, that I shared with uh, Stacy Mann, the publicist, and Carrie Brown, the still photographer. We all, we all shared an office together. And I was always just like checking out AVP Galaxy, IMDb's board. I was, you know, uh, all the various boards. And I would just always be, you know, reporting back to them like, hey, they're saying this, they're saying that. This leaked out. These photos got out. And it was just it was very amusing to me just like to to have that instant connection with 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 the the forum members you know even though i wasn't posting i'm not on avp galaxy i have i don't post under an alias or anything like that but i i do read it you know and still to this day i, I still read it and um to me it's just it's uh it's a fascinating perspective to have because you you, you kind of want to reach through the screen sometimes and scream at people no it's <laughs> you know or no you're entirely wrong about everything but um but i appreciate the the passion that everyone has i mean even if they don't like the film or even if they have problems with certain things, you can still tell they, they love this universe and they still care about it very passionately because they're still arguing about it. You know, I've told people that many times about Prometheus. It's like, you know, when I came out of the Avengers with friends, we, we, we thought, wow, that was a really high, it was a very highly entertaining film and it was a lot of fun. So great, you know, really great movies. We had nothing bad to say about it. And then like five minutes later, we were like, okay, what's next? What's, what, where's dinner? Where are we going to get drinks at? And that's not a that's not a slam against Avengers. It's just like there's like almost no argument to have about it. It's just it's a quality film. It's a lot of fun. Prometheus people are still arguing about it months later, and I think they're going to be arguing about it for years to come. And and I feel like Prometheus was going to have a long life because of that. You know, in the same way that people debated Blade Runner. You know, whether Deckard was a replicant or not. I mean, that's still happening today, thirty something years later. So I, I really do appreciate the the dialogue and the and the, the passionate discourse that 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 you know has kind of followed the creation of Prometheus and now the aftermath of it. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll continue to follow it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just, all I can say is that people that think that there are these, these kind of like uh, conspiracy plots to like screw people over or, you know, to, to, you know, release fake scripts and things like that. I mean, that's really not the case at all, but it's, you know, like the whole alien harvest thing. That's why I included that in, um, in one of the enhancement pods is because it was so, amusing to everybody on the film then when that that's that script came out and, and people were swearing up and down it was either the real script or it was the inspiration for the, the film or whatever and, and it wasn't but we couldn't say anything about it and then of course they would say well if they can't say anything about it then it must be the real thing it's like well no we can't think about it because then that's confirming that it's not the real thing you know and and that's that's that to me is the the, the fun but frustrating part of uh fandom is, is that is not being able to communicate and you just you just sit there thinking god i just wish i could you know straighten them out and tell them what's really happening but then that starts to give people a reference for what is true and what isn't true and then they start to figure out the movie just through process of elimination 
No, I just, I, that's not really much of a comment or a question. Just kind of like just often thought about is there a way to, you know, kind of communicate without communicating almost telepathically? Can I just convey to you guys that it's, you know, going to be okay? <laughs> Some people get so upset about things. You know, I've got my own frustrations when it comes to the website. So, well, we, we had the Strauss brothers on at one point yeah. who did Requiem. Yeah. And that did not go down well at all. Their sort of interactions with everybody gave them expectations for when the actual film came out and it was so completely different. Yeah, I think it made things a lot worse when it actually happened. So, you know, I I think it's a pretty good thing to keep it limited. Official people's interactions with, with us fandom. So I totally see where you're coming from sometimes with that. Even I get frustrated. You know, there's people from all over the world interacting on this one place and you've got all these different people, all these different personas, personalities, opinions, everything. And, you know, when they, when they all get together, it can be really stressful place at times. <laughs> so That's so true. So very true. <laughs> which, which is a shame because you think everyone is, is coming together because they, they love it. You know, they love... They love the alien movies and the predator films. And, and you think that that's why everyone's getting together. But I I also think that people just love to argue no matter what. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I've got a, I've got a friend who will argue to the end of the earth, no matter about what he just loves, he loves to do it. What what were we arguing about the other day? I think it was Conan. And we're arguing about it's how it started. And to the point where he would just, go for it no matter what because he, t- he just wanted to argue I mean the folk is so the same on there I mean it doesn't matter what it is I mean stuff that you would think would universally be loved was absolutely can be absolutely slated by some people I mean when I first when I first came onto the onto fandom and into the internet they, it honestly surprised me the amount of people that would rip into into aliens I mean you'd think that film would be loved by pretty much most people but the amount of hatred that i saw for the for the queen and the the life cycle as jim cameron interpreted it 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 was astonishing you know i couldn't understand at the time you know i was i was a bit younger then how people could hate it so much whereas so many other people could love it and it's, it's the tricky thing about about the internet no it is i mean i i remember again being a kid when alien came out and and even aliens and that, you know, there, there was no internet, there was no chat rooms and no message boards. And you just didn't have that sort of uh, immediate access to the world and, to, you know, not only express your opinion, but to engage anonymous strangers in this kind of gladiatorial combat. <laughs> over, uh, <laughs> over you know? I, And it is it has changed the dynamic of the way we love films or not love films. It's very strange. And that's why. Every year when I go to Comic-Con and I go to Hall H and the studios bring out their big guns and they, they have you know big directors and actors come down and they show their exclusive clips. And I, on the one hand, I think it's great to see all that stuff. But on the other hand, I feel like you get up, you get up on stage in Hall H and you say, you know, even though I'm a multi-million dollar director, I'm still a geek like you guys. That, that doesn't resonate with me, you know, because I sit there thinking, well, you're not a geek. You know, you're actually making films and you should you should you should follow that path and not worry about chasing you know, fan approval. You should make the best film you possibly can. And and don't worry about referencing 
you know, things within the franchise or making, you know, like little meta in jokes about the previous film or things like that is just tell the best story you can. I feel like we've gotten to this point now where people at studios, maybe not so much anymore, but there was definitely a time where I feel like they were pandering to, uh, to fans a little too much. And I, I, I do think there's a nice balance of being respectful to characters and, and, and storylines that have been already previously established in other installments or other incarnations. But by the same token, if you keep trying to make everybody happy, you're not going to make anybody happy. That, that was that was what the AVPs pretty much succumbed to as well. And the last film is essentially just a homage of all the awesome bits of the other ones. Um, Mike, is there anything you'd like to get in there? Uh, no, I, I'm just really... I just sat back this whole time and listened. I, I'm a photographer on the side for my own business. I'm like leading towards a photography career. And I've been doing a lot of photojournalistic stuff. And this whole interview right here was just fascinating to me. Like I said earlier, it's Pandora's box. I would love to be a part of something like this. I'm just kind of taken away and just listened here. I'm really blown away by this. <laughs> um, well, good. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I, mean, I don't really have much to say. I'm just very, like, I'm just a little overwhelmed with all the information. Yeah, <laughs> That's exactly what we want. So th- thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. I'm sure our listeners will love this because this has been one of my favorite ones. Lots of info, as Mikey said. Yeah, so, very, very much. I like a lot of info. <laughs> so thank, thanks. I really appreciate it. Well, thank, thank you, Charles, and um, good luck with Crave. If, if I can make just one shameless plug, uh, Crave yeah, the CraveTheFilm dot com. There we are, CraveTheFilm dot com. Hopefully coming out soon. Um, so thank you very much. And uh, this is Corporal Hicks. We've got Mikey. Hello, bye. What are we doing? I don't know. I'm, I'm just I'm just in love right now. <laughs> Soppy geek. Alright. Yeah, and um Charles, so goodbye. Great. Thanks guys. I appreciate it.